Welcome to OncoFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoFarm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It's, uh, it's January 25th, 2024. Feeling good, feeling healthy. Uh, if you saw on, uh, on Twitter last week, um, the reason for no episode last week is uh, we had snow days and we had flu days, and they overlapped, so it was... Uh, I and uh, the rest of the family were holed up with some with some influenza A uh, and and flu-like symptoms for a while, so wasn't able to record a podcast. I was too ill uh, last uh, last week to do so, but back and uh, as good as ever, I guess. Uh, in the meantime, we've had a, a you know a lot of FDA approvals to talk about, and and some new stuff has come out that I haven't had a chance to address with the illness, with the holiday break. Uh, so let's get right into it. Going back a ways to December 14th, I don't think I've talked about these on the pod, uh, FDA approved um, Belzutifan for renal cell carcinoma, metastatic renal cell carcinoma in patients who had previously been treated, uh, including a PD-L1 or PD-1, PD-1 inhibitor and a VEGF receptor targeting, uh, or TKI. Now, Belzutifan had been approved previously for von Hippel-Lindau disease-associated malignancies, which RCC could be. This approval is based off of better progression-free survival versus everolimus. A lot of people would probably consider everolimus less than the standard of care for advanced renal cell carcinoma. This is because we had a second-line study of everolimus versus a TKI in a second-line setting about 10 years ago. All those patients had already received a TKI. The assumption, the smart people in oncology knew that VEGF TKI followed by mTOR inhibitor would be better than VEGF TKI followed by VEGF TKI. They knew that. That was what was recommended. It was wrong when they did the study. VEGF TKI then continued with a different VEGF TKI was better than the mTOR inhibitor. So I have to wonder if Belzutifan had been compared to sunitinib or pazopinib or cabozantinib or just continuing their most recent VEGF inhibitor, to be honest, if you would see improved progression-free survival. Um, but anyway, it is FDA-approved. It's that hypoxia-inducible factor inhibitor. Because of that novelty, I think people will be you know, attracted to use it. Uh, the study supporting use, though, I, I, I don't buy. I don't buy just yet. Uh, anyway, the next day, December 15th, we had uh, the approval of Enfortumab, Vidotin, and Cisplatin in the first-line setting for metastatic or advanced urothelial cancer, bladder cancer. We talked about this on the pod. The title uh, back in, I think it was October, was Press Release Medicine, where the people making this about a press release. This was covered at ESMO. Very impressive overall survival benefit in both those who were cisplatin eligible and those cisplatin ineligible. Although a lot more, especially dermatologic toxicity with the combination versus pembrolizumab alone. But that got FDA approved um, at the end of last year in December. Uh, and then, you know, FDA took a while off. And then January 12th, we get an approval for pembrolizumab with concurrent cisplatin and radiation therapy for advanced cervical cancer. This is based on Keynote 18. This was, you know, 40 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin for five weeks with an option for a six weekly dose with radiation for, I think this was actually FIGO, which is um, like the International Gynon Federation, but it's uh, in like a romance language, so it's like Federacional International Gynecologic uh, Oncology, FIGO, uh, stage 1B all the way to 4A, okay? Um, that, was the, that was the study, 
Okay, that was Kino A, that was the population. The approval is just for the, the stage three to four A population. And that's based off the fact that uh, despite the overall population having a, a favorable progression-free survival, a statistically significant progression-free survival, FDA is saying in their press release, the exploratory analyses, which should be hypothesis generated, the exploratory analysis is showing all the benefit is in the stage three to four A patients. And that's the approval. So the, the hazard ratio for PFS for stage 1B to 2B, 2B in these cervical cancer patients was 0.91 with a confidence that crossed one and 0.59 in those that were stage 3 to, to 4A. So stage 3 cervical cancer, these are squamous cell carcinomas. Uh, a stage 3 is a cervical cancer that either invades the lower third of the vagina or the pelvic wall or pelvic or periaortic lymph nodes. That stage is 3A, 3B, 3C. And stage 4A is it starts to to grow into adjacent organs, and stage 4B is distant metastasis. So, so these are very advanced patients up to stage 4A, and they're getting, along with the cisplatin um, and radiation, they're getting pembrolizumab, 400 milligrams uh, every three weeks for five doses, and then an extended uh, uh, frequency every six weeks for 15 doses. They're basically getting two years of pembrolizumab, and, and we do see you know, a, a fairly sizable improvement in progression-free survival. There's a trend towards overall survival. Um, this has not yet made it into our favorite guidelines. Seems like this is probably going to become standard of care. There is a lot of morbidity with these patients. Um, so I, I think some of that long-term morbidity data, you know, if, if you have hydronephrosis, do, do we have some, some preservation of, of organ activity? Um, there can be uh, fistula formation. Is that more with pembrolizumab? Is it less? Is it the same? Those are other questions that maybe need to be answered before you know pembrolizumab becomes standard of care upfront with with cisplatin radiation. Although I'm sure there are who are adopting it as standard of care right now. Um, hopefully, in the future, if all the the good little boys and girls of the world get their their HPV uh, vaccination, this can go away. There's a report out. And this is not my wheelhouse as a non-public health expert, but there's a report out of Scotland, uh, you know, the patient, the women who have who have grown up getting HPV vaccination, that they're not finding any case of invasive cervical cancer in that cohort. Really fascinating. And, and the you know, this was promising 20 years ago when HPV, vac HPV vac human papillomavirus vaccines came out that we might have a cervical free, cervical cancer free world one day. And we're starting to see that becoming more and more of a possibility, uh, which is great, which is great. Um, okay, uh, January 19th, uh, we FDA approved ertafitinib in metastatic urothelial cancer. I could have sworn I talked about this on the pod. I did not. This was uh, patients with ertafitinib compared to chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy was either docetaxel or venfluthine in metastatic urothelial cancer or bladder cancer with an FGFR3 alteration. Okay, that's the approval, it's just FGFR3. Erdofitinib previously was approved under the accelerated approval pathway for FGFR2 and FGFR3 alterations. The approval based on this study is just FGFR3 alterations. And they had to receive at least one prior line of treatment for bladder cancer, and it had to be a PD-1 or PDL one uh, inhibitor. So this is not a drug for people who before PD-1 or PDL one And it showed a statistically significant improvement in overall survival, 12 months versus 7.8 months, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.64, 95% confidence interval 0.47 to 0.88, and that's versus chemotherapy. So 
So, you know, ertafitinib before was kind of weighed down the therapy. We, we now know definitely it's better than, than chemo. We thought that before based on the accelerated approval, but we've learned to tighten that just to FGFR3 uh, alterations. Um, so those are um, the, the four FDA approvals to talk about. Um, there was another publication from some French researchers looking at immune checkpoint inhibitors given early in the morning versus later in the day. Retrospective study, we say, what do we make of those? Well, I don't know, but another retrospective study that has shown early morning administration of immune checkpoint inhibitors was associated with better survival and more, more immune-related toxicity, lending a little more evidence that, you know, you know, suns out, T-cells out, as we talked about maybe a couple of years ago. Um, it could be, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked to patients before who dread the early morning um, appointments. Um, it just seems the people that are able to show up at 8 a.m. have a better performance status and often a better socioeconomic status than the ones who need a 3 o'clock appointment. That sort of a confounder is not going to come out in any, in any regression analysis. So really this is why, you know, we have a hypothesis based on these studies. You need a randomized controlled study to control for those confounders as best you can that you can't really account for any other way. That's, that's the science of how it works. Um, the last thing I want to talk about. I am not fully, you know, uh, the person to talk about this study. Um, so I really am trusting our friends of the pod over at Wolverheme Happy Hour to dig into this. Uh, this is Flagida uh, plus gemtuzumab ozogamycin versus an anthracycline cytarabine based induction similar to 7 plus 3 plus gemtuzumab ozogamycin in uh, in newly diagnosed patients under the age of 60, adults uh, with AML, with NPM1 and FLT3 mutations. This, first of all, I, this, is the, um, this is from the UK. Thank goodness for Europeans studying uh, AML. Otherwise, here in America, we'd have no new data that wasn't funded directly by a pharmaceutical company. This is the NRCI uh, AML19 study, and, and they enrolled almost 1,500 patients with AML on a study. Amazing, amazing. Um, now, if you have that many patients, you have a lot of potential questions you can ask, and I wish they had just asked one question, um, because they're comparing a couple different things here. And I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna t tell you what the questions they're asking are. Uh, I'm not sure any of them are definitively answered in the study, and so we're gonna have to read between the lines, and the beauty will be in the eye of the beholder. And I don't have enough uh, you know, expertise evaluating AML data, especially in the UK, to provide great insight on that. So I'm, I'm telling you the questions I have about this in hopes, so maybe you're primed to look at this, okay? So folks are randomized to either, they do a 3 plus 10, so 10 days of anthracycline, and they, they're doing donorubicin 60, not dono 90 in these younger patients, less than 60. Um, um, and they're giving them either one dose of gemtuzumab ozogamycin or two doses. So there's, there's the anthracycline cytarabine, group, and then that group is split into those who are getting one dose or two doses of gemtuzumab ozogamycin. Then there's a flag ida group that's getting one dose or two doses of gemtuzumab ozogamycin, right? Um, th there was no giving two doses of gemtuzumab ozogamycin did not have any added benefit compared to one dose of gemtuzumab ozogamycin. That I feel confident saying from the study. Furthermore, what they looked at is those folks who got flagida plus gemtuzumab ozogamycin, which they expected to be more myelosuppressive, had more hematologic toxicity, which it did. Then that group, the folks who made it that far and got into remission, then they were randomized to either two doses of HIDAC, one dose of HIDAC, 
or no HIDAC. So the post-remission therapy is very different between the groups and even intra the FLAG-IDA group. So that really makes it hard for me to look at long-term overall survival analysis for something like this for these folks. They're, they're, they're risk trying to find these are people without adverse cytogenetic risks, but that also includes people who have some FLT3 ITD mutations because you're just looking at cytogenetics to risk, it looks like. Um, and I'm just gonna kind of read some of the things here. So FLAG-IDA go, Reduced relapse, but no improvement in overall survival. And they think that there's especially benefit in PM1 and the FLT3 mutations uh, with improvements in overall survival. But a lot of caveats to that. I, I do want to give you some numbers. You know, complete remission rates, including those with incomplete hematologic recovery, which they should call incomplete remission, um, in my opinion. 93 versus 91%. Okay, 60-day mortality, 4.3 versus 4.6, despite a lot more hematologic toxicity in flying Ida. Um, OS 66 versus 63%, but the risk of relapse was 25% with flag to go compared to 41% with anthracycline cytarabine go, which was statistically significant. And the three-year event-free survival, so no death, no relapse, 57% versus 45%, statistically significantly favoring um, the flag to plus gemtuzumab ozogamycin. Um, and, and I won't get into the NPM1 and FLT3 data, which is a, a big part of this study. 1,500 people on a study, uh, I think we're going to see more more data coming out from that. They, they talk about more publications coming. So certainly going to be a rich source of information in, in determining how we treat people with, with AML. Uh, you know, of course, is, you know, 10 days of 100 milligrams per meter squared, is that going to make a difference of cytarabine of a 100 per meter squared per day for seven days or 200 per seven days? Probably not. So I think we can probably extrapolate you know, a lot of this here. Um, I don't know if a lot of people are going to start adopting flag guide up front in, in some of these folks. Uh, might start to see it. Um, this was prior to the Ratify study, so there were there are almost 15-20% of patients with FLT3 ITD mutations and a few TKD. They weren't getting mitostarin in the study, it looks like, because this was done before the Ratify results were out. These folks were randomized from 2015 to 2020, um, if I'm remembering that correctly. So, Certainly a lot of information, uh, despite my concerns about trying to answer too many questions. Um, you know, the more questions you ask, the harder it is to answer just one question, in my opinion. But hard to fault people doing the work to put 1,500 people on study, because there is some useful information to this uh, that I'm interested to see smarter folks than I uh, talk about with regards to, to, to AML. So that's what I have this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on uh, the app formerly known as Twitter at PharmDeetNib, and you can follow the podcast on, on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and threads at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.